I'm pretty sure Radio Shack's entire business model was based on selling Y cables to people like me who needed yes. it like that day right. for 40 bucks. Right. But you're in the middle of Sioux City. Or HDMI. Yeah. You well, need it now. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Soundboard, the Steinway and Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. I'm your producer and host, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at Steinway and Sons and for the online music magazine, listenmusicculture.com. My guest today is Grammy-winning composer Mason Bates, whose works wed classical music and electronica. Bates spoke to me from the studios of WQXR, New York's home for classic rock. I was working at Carnegie Hall in 99, and I think that's when I first became aware of you and your music. There was this image of you then, oh, there's a DJ in the orchestra, and you would have to do a lot of press shots with headphones right. on, right? right? Going like this that's right. for listeners, yeah. my fingers are on the turntable that doesn't exist. You had to do that because of the classical community being what it is, right? When instrumentalists get shots, they're always holding their clarinet. Or the worst, the conductor with like the baton or the pianist draped over the Steinway. So you know who they are. The image has to tell the story. That's right. It's like football players appearing with their helmets in commercials because we don't, unless you're Peyton Manning, we don't know who you are out of uniform, right? I don't think people were aware that you weren't an outsider insofar as you weren't this DJ who came into classical music, that you have a classical background, you're a classical pianist. So... What I think you've done is not set classical music to house beats, but rather expand the orchestra to include electronica as instruments in that orchestra. Is that a fair summation of what you do? That's fair. You know, what's interesting is that when I first encountered electronic music, it was in in New York. You know, it was not like in Richmond, Virginia, where I grew up, because it was not like a thriving... (laughs) DJ scene at the foot of the Lee Monument or something like that. And it really transformed me. It grabbed me because that world is so different on the surface from the world of classical music, but there's this incredible synergy to it because it's basically an instrumental medium. I mean, instrumental meaning there's not a vocalist, there's not like a lead singer or no melody um, that's attached to lyrics. And so the textures and, you know, these beautiful textures and intricate rhythms get bumped up. So I got consumed with that. And like the DJing has been a big part of it because I feel like it's hard to really get to the essence of any music unless you really do it. Like if you, you really get your hands in there and being a bedroom DJ is cool, but you don't really learn how to architect a set unless you spend, you know, three hours every other Friday at, you know, various places in San Francisco or whatever. Seeing what cooks and yeah, what does. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and it, it does, this is one of these things that like really does impact your thinking. But yeah, I mean, in the classical zone, I think uh, initially there was this novelty in like bringing DJ uh, culture into the orchestra. But as you pointed out, what began with techno rhythms very quickly moved to like all the sonic possibilities of electronic sounds, you know, like setting a NASA spacewalk to music or, um, going to the Camp Pendleton to sample the Marines blowing things up to 
put into a symphony about war. There's so many possibilities there. So I still, my heart is still in the the rhythms and the energy of electronic dance music. But when you bring that into a concert hall, there's, there's so many more possibilities for trapdoors and for content to come mm-hmm. into the symphonic setting in a way that I mean, it's not exactly like when, you know, you imagine a chorus being added to a symphony. But it's kind of like that. I mean, suddenly you have people singing text and there's meaning. And if you can add the sound of Virginia at nightfall, um, suddenly you have this piece about, you know, the South, growing up in the South in, in the summertime, and it suddenly takes on context. So, mm. Now, that said, um, a key moment in my life was when my parents found a Steinway. I was playing on a horrible upright piano that is still at the family farm that does not sound good, still missing certain keys. There was a Steinway at our uh, school, and so I was like sneaking in at night to play it over there. And we stumbled upon one for um, an amazing, amazing deal. It really changed my life because at that time, which was like high school for me, I hadn't really had the kind of enveloping sounds of, of a grand. Mm. That really starts to make you compose differently, like any interface will. You were speaking about the textures of electronica. So my first entree into, we just called it techno yeah. back in the 90s. Which is what it was, yeah. <laughs> uh, was Plastic Man. Yeah, sure. For those of you who don't know Plastic Man, kind of a minimal house sound, a lot of stuff with sine waves, very... It's almost a cliche now, right. but back in the day, it was very forward and new and exciting. thing about electronic music is you have these textures and they advance or they recede based on whether they're active or inactive. Right. And sometimes that gets poo-pooed by the classical community because they see it as, well, this is just loops. So really this guy's writing four to 16 bars and he's adding elements and he's taking it away. And it's not like this through composed symphony that was written by the classical masters. So what say you to that? You know, what's funny is that hearing any great electronic music, Plastic Man or Aphex Twin, um, you know, some of the really intricate, beautiful stuff in a, in a mindset of I'm in a concert hall, will not do that music justice. The psychology of listening is so important. That was one of the big revelations to me when I started DJing. It was that, you hear music differently in different spaces and there's a psychological component to the listening environment. And so hearing a plastic man set in a club where it's meant to be played, the intricacies of texture, the unbelievable things that happen with sound design. And there are surprisingly complicated things that can happen with moving fairly simple on the surface rhythmic patterns around. 
that is a really deep listening experience. It's true though when you when you combine those together, you, you really have to create a kind of new thing in the middle. If you really want it to be something that has the deep listening of classical music and the power of techno, it really can't just be like the Kenny G version of whatever he's doing at the moment where it's just this kind of loose crossover. And sometimes I think people who haven't heard my music, who heard about what I'm doing, they think, Oh, that's, are you doing like strings with just like four on the floor the whole time? And I'm like, I'm sorry to tell you that it's not, it's not that. I mean, it, in some ways that, that kind of simple crossover would be more appealing to, to some ears. But what we do in our space... We have. That different. exists already yeah. in pop <laughs> techno. plenty of that. Yeah. Plenty of sampled strings with, uh, with heavy house behind it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I mean the challenge is is that um, the kind of listening we do in our field is is so special, and it's even beyond just the instruments of classical music. Because sometimes you know if you bring in a quartet into a, a pop album, it really doesn't make it a classical moment. It's really the depth of the listening that comes from everything from the dynamic range to the harmonic range. And so I've had a lot of fun and challenges trying to to bridge those worlds because I, I think. As you mentioned before, there is a very logical extension. I mean, the orchestra is like opera. It can sort of consume anything. It can withstand lots of change. Incorporating electronic sounds into the orchestra has been um, like a journey for me that I don't think is ever going to stop evolving. What made you think that that sort of merger was possible? When did you first start thinking, you know... This could be something. It was when I was DJing um, okay. early on in San Francisco, right after the dot-com bust of 2001. There were all these incredible venues around town because during the tech boom, there'd been so many damn parties. And uh, there was like this phenomenal opportunity to go spin in everything from clubs to museums to lounges to art galleries. And I was doing that while I was simultaneously filling commissions for orchestras and chamber groups around the country and keeping them pretty segregated. And I remember really thinking while a mix was unfolding, it would be so great right now if we had like a brass section just swell into this. And then wow, what if, you, if that was going to happen? What about this? And then the gears started to turn. And um, it really didn't come from sitting in a concert hall. It was, it was really the inclination came to me like, thinking about what, what could you bring into this really visceral space of, of beats. And then, you know, little by little, I started to, to integrate them. Thank you. 
bringing in beats, bringing in electronica. I would imagine there's an inherent danger in locking the orchestra into a click and, and removing their ability to use rubato and phrasing. And how do you bring in that element without crippling your orchestral players? I mean, it's, it's such a good question because it's one of the existential elements of an orchestra is time. There are a couple, couple ways I've dealt with it. Um, the basic approach is that it's a hybrid approach. It's a complicated approach that has a lot of different solutions because if it was one solution that everybody has to be on a click all the time, that's pretty intense. On the other end of the spectrum, if you think, well, we have these electronic beats, but we're going to have some kind of malleable software to, to warp to them, that's also a disaster waiting to happen because you know, you've got an orchestra migrating time every measure, um, whether they realize it or not. And so basically, I, f- I find ways to have passages of the orchestra locking to the beats. And there's no, it's effectively a click track, but it's an audible, like they have to just, he- we have to have monitors in the orchestra so they can hear the beats. I specifically want them to be reacting to the beats and not a click. And I, I try to keep it so that there's really not too many extended passages of locking. That's both for musical reasons, because in the concert hall, as we're talking about, the, the listening perception is so different. You know, once you're locking for a little bit, it's great to have it, you know, shatter and to do something else. Um, and then also, just from a performance standpoint, um, it's a lot less soul crushing. I mean, those film concerts that happen all over the country, mm. those are really great for orchestras. And it's cool to see that new medium popping up. I'm writing a piece based on that. But man, that that you are t- on two hours of clicking click. is just that's like try running in somebody's footsteps for two hours. You know, it's like pretty hard. But that's usually on the conductor, right? If he's if he's watching the film and he's got the yeah yeah, it's true. Um, that said, you know the the musicians are they're feeling that there's just they're no, held captive. Yeah, I've found also that it's important not to have electronics all the time. Um, it's, it's what it was one of the big realizations for me is that it does not have to be playing all the time because it, it can just act like a section of the orchestra that can be there and not be there. And as you mentioned, there's this thing about in electronic music, there's sort of like loops and layers and foreground and background that, and, and if you even just take away the rhythmic element of that, the possibilities for electronic sounds to be foreground, background, and middle ground, and kind of a chameleon in those zones is pretty interesting. Like it can be ambient in some way where you like, I have this piece of rusty air in Carolina where it's just like insect noises and gradually start to realize that the swells, the cicadas are like locking into the orchestra swells. And that's a complicated software solution because it, these are ambient sounds. And so it's like a max patch that has to do this that, and the other. And, um, the orchestra is free to play there and the laptop player follows. Um, but that's a, it's, a, it's an interesting experience when you registering something as truly background, like insect noise is in the background, and then it starts to kind of govern the whole enterprise.
I love that about electronic music. And you just have to make sure you remember that in a symphonic situation, there are two audiences. There's the audience in the mm-hmm. hall and then there's the players on the stage. And they don't want to be trapped in a cage the entire time. So I've had to really navigate that. And I think one of the reasons that orchestras have played a lot of my music is that they know instantly that I am not just like slapping a, a click track on them for two hours. <laughs> It sounds like there's some aesthetic overlap with spectralism. Yeah, I mean... Not so much. To be honest with you, um, <laughs> I love the sounds of spectral composers. And if any of the listeners aren't aware of it, it's like kind of like mathematical constructions of form based on like a sonic analysis of a flute. You know, I just found that those dudes are so cerebral and um, I just want more heart in the game. But I do love some of those surfaces. And, you know, the French, even when they're following some stupid mathematical analysis of a flute, despite the fact that they're French and should be following their heart, they still sound like they've got perfume on it. So they, they have a great way with texture. Sorry to just stereo. Fair. Typical, typically categorize all French people. Fair. I was talking with Steinway artist Vijay Iyer for this podcast. He, like you, is bringing something too classical in his case it's jazz right and maybe we should call it orchestral music at this point so he's bringing a jazz idiom to orchestral and he's saying like so many guys right now are concerned about the canon and and is this going to be in the canon for me says vijay climate change is coming (laughs) i don't know if there's going to be a world in 40 years there may not be a canon anymore i'm writing music for right now And I feel that's something you may share with him, is writing music for right now. But I wonder if you could speak to what it means to write classical music in the 21st century, or maybe we're saying what it means to write orchestral music. I don't know how you want to... Yeah. I do know what Vijay means in that you you can't get so hung up about posterity when you're writing. You really do want to write for the present moment. That said, you know, if you're specifically in symphonic music and there's so few opportunities for composers to, to really make it on the symphonic stage. And so it's not, it's not really in existence. Many people would, would understand or share, but if, if you're in that zone, you do have this relationship with long historical precedent. And it is really interesting to be listening to like, rebels les elements which has this evocation of chaos at the beginning and to to kind of feel like wow that cat was doing some cool shit you know Mm -hmm. and like the day he wrote that was probably like blew his mind out of his head and you can resonate with that and you think that was like three or four hundred years ago and and um i i do think that being in this field that is a little bit like continental drift. I mean, it's a little bit like a long game, you know, it takes a long time for pieces to get enveloped by the rep and it takes a long time for you as a composer to grow. You do develop maybe a bit of a historical perspective. You know, I think it's, it's healthy in some ways to think about that, even though thinking about posterity too much is dangerous because honestly, if, if you do get entirely hung up in the present moment, there's a danger there, I think, also, and, uh, and this is a little bit of a different subject, but just getting wrapped up in almost like the news cycle of the moment, the, you know, the kind of, I mean, our culture is pretty focused on what's crackling on the internet 
at this moment. And I, I do appreciate the perspective that being a symphonist gives me. Absolutely. I mean, just to talk about me, <laughs> <laughs> I was a music journalist and now I'm a content creator, right? right? The digital world has shortened our attention span. Listening is almost the new reading, right? right? right. Yeah. Like we have this pocket of readers and we probably also now have this pocket of listeners of people who will actually sit down on something not wearing earbuds and listen right. to an album from start to finish. But more likely, I'm going to Facebook message my friend and say, check out this Mason Bates track. Right. And I'll send him 11 minutes of music from Spotify or from a site or from SoundCloud. And that'll be your exposure to my buddy. Yeah. Even though you at least get to remain a composer and a symphonist, you're doing it in this digital age. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting, the... The medium that we write for, we're, you know, we're talking about the psychology of space and how a three-hour DJ set sounds different in a club versus a concert hall. I'm very much writing for that symphonic psychology, and um, that doesn't really translate so well over, you know, tinny speakers and and kind of like I'm putting this on while I'm doing something else. And I, I, I know you can say it about anything, but it, it really is it really is a hazard of of our field that you know if you find yourself writing something that sounds instantly good on a computer and it you can drop it at any moment and it sounds good it will probably select for some music that i really love i mean there's like brooklyn minimalism or there's various kinds of surface texture music that that sounds good at any moment like a worm you can cut up and it always wriggles but um that depth of listening experience that you get from the symphonic experience is hard to get if you're just kind of like throwing it on. And I, I don't know if we figured out if there's any way to, to translate that. And, and maybe that's just why more people should just remind themselves that live music is an important thing to experience. There's really nothing like that experience. I think a lot can change about classical music before we even touch what's being played on, you know, like if we can just work on the experience at the concert hall, take a little bit of the edge off the concert experience, more people would allow themselves to like cruise into this dark, mysterious space and, you know, have their, their life change for that moment. Ambient music does have an advantage in that way it, with the Brian, Eno music yeah. for airports aesthetic, right? Absolutely. Music you can completely focus in on or music you can almost completely ignore. Yeah. And I always wonder what it must be like. Um, it'd be so interesting to talk to, you know, or, Imagine like just the psychology of an ambient composer. No fast movements, and if like his cat sneezes, no it must be like wow. <laughs> no sudden steps. No right, sudden right. moves. Yeah, yeah, and and it's it's like then when you go on the other end of the spectrum, um, say like you know so much of uh, um, this is a person I do know very well, John Adams. His music is always so full of uh, energy and always like changing ten times a second. You almost expect him to have his hair on fire when you first meet him. I guess people just learn to to do what they do and to have yeah. an outwardly normal. He's appearance. very chill. Yeah, <laughs> he's chill, but I know hey. I, we all know. Yeah, chill but driven, <laughs> outwardly chill. I'm not going to let you get out of here without talking about your latest project, which is Philharmonia Fantastique. Speaking of organic sounds and the Symphony Hall and 
music from an orchestra, this project speaks to all those things. Yeah. Philharmonie Fantastique is a 25 minute animated film for performance in the concert hall. Like just like those movie concerts that happen all over the place. Um, with the one exception is that it's not a blockbuster film. It's an original piece written for that medium. I've just been seeing all of these concerts at every size orchestra and it's like a new medium, like screen and orchestra. And I thought it'd be so nice to create something for that. And I feel like not only as a, as a resident of the 21st century, but also as a dad with two young kids, it'd be nice to like journey inside the orchestra to see the instruments, how they work. So this piece has this angle of kind of creativity and technology instruments as models of interactive technology. That's a little different from other guides to the orchestra. So it is um, a piece I'm working on with this amazing director named Gary rides from Lucasfilm and um, an animator named Jim Capobianco, who was formerly Pixar and now has his own animation studio. And both of these guys are moonlighting to do this project that, um, it's happening with five orchestras around the country, starting with Chicago and San Francisco, and then going to Pittsburgh, Dallas, and National. You know, we just had a screening yesterday, and we had a whole range of people in the, the screening room at Lucasfilm. It was just fascinating to see people so excited about seeing the inside of a cello while it's playing, um, or the, how the valves work. And you know, but, oh, gee, I didn't realize that, you know that a string looks kind of like a trampoline being jumped on when you hit it with harmonics. So it's very tactile, very yeah. steampunk. Yeah, right. So anyway, that's coming out in in uh, March and April this year. But it's been one of the coolest projects I've ever worked on. It's really an inspiration. And the day we filmed all of the live shots of the instruments up close, I felt like I was falling in love with every instrument of the orchestra again. Because you look at it like, wow, look at the harp it has all these gears on it. It's cool to remind ourselves how complex precise craftsmanship each instrument in the orchestra is. Yeah. I mean, each (laughs) instrument is like a complete tribe of hundreds of years of development. And I, I mean, I remember encountering the Steinway tree of evolution when I started including prepared piano, kind of lightly prepared piano, just a couple of notes Mm -hmm. and some of my pieces. And um, I realized, Oh my God, like with every First time you got inside yeah, the guts. With every D or B or C, you know, change in the model, you're going to have different yeah. steel in different places. And, um, you know, even just like what we think of as a set thing, the grand piano has like a just infinite complexity to it. It's You take all those instruments together and you have absolutely one of the great wonders of the world. I mean, I think we should take off like King Tut or just some random wonders of the world that somehow made it on the list. The orchestra is absolutely one of the greatest achievement creations. And it's such an incredible model of diverse sounds and technologies fusing together into one giant instrument. And that's why I love writing for it. And I know you've divided up the orchestra into four families. I imagine that's brass, woodwind, strings, and percussion. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, your contribution thus far seems to be, has been to bring in the fifth family of electronica. Maybe not one that's going to get a permanent seat at the table, but one that offers welcome possibilities for conversation. Yeah, we actually talked a lot about that, the, the creative team. When we've got these four tribes, and, and Gary and Jim were really interested in adding 
we had the fifth tribe, which is what you brought into it. And I was like, you know, it's true. presumptuous. It's there. <laughs> it's there. Let's think of it as an extension of the percussion section. I was like, it might yeah. be confusing to people yeah. to be considering a family that's just now emerged in the past 15 years. But yeah, it's, those are all like different. We treat them as tribes that have to kind of learn to speak each other's tongues. They have to each kind of pick up each other's themes, um, in order to come together. And, um, you know, I don't know if we always think about how the orchestra just on a civic level is, you know, demonstrating unity out of diversity. System of checks and balances. (laughs) Yeah. There we go. Just like our government. (laughs) All right. We better stop there. Uh, Mason, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. That was a keeper. Yeah. Easy peasy. Cool. Yeah. It's fun to do this with you. been listening to soundboard the steinway and sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship in order we heard clips from mason bates the art of war a kennedy center digital stage original plasticity by plastic man aka richie houghton from his album sheet one on nova music clubbed to death by rob duggan on mo wax rough math from mason bates bagatelles performed by the del sol quartet from their album scrapyard exotica on sono luminous Rusty Air in North Carolina, performed by the Boston Mothership Orchestra Project and Gil Rose from the album Mason Bates Mothership on BMOP Sound. A percussion section excerpt from Mason Bates' animated feature, Philharmonia Fantastique. And Mason Bates' The B-Sides, 3, Gemini and the Solar Winds, performed by the San Francisco Symphony, conducted by Michael Tilson Thomas on FSS Media. Our intro and outro music is Philip Glass's Mad Rush, performed on a Steinway Model M by me, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at listenmusicculture.com. Questions for the podcast can be sent to info at steinway.com with the subject heading Soundboard. Thank you for listening.